0: If you have your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17. You ever confuse somebody when you mention something and they misunderstood you? You ever bring a topic up in a conversation and the rest of those that are listening look at you all? What are you talking about? Have you ever felt that you needed to take the time to explain yourself to those that may not understand what you're talking about? I think we've all been there a time or two, right? We've all had moments in our lives where we feel like we have to explain ourselves because everybody else was puzzled and confused. Well, this morning as we look at this text, that's exactly what goes on with Paul. He, he brings certain things up to the culture of the Greeks, and he's questioned, Because some are confused and not really understanding what he's talking about. And they give him the floor to really be able to respond. So this morning we're going to be looking at three things specifically. We're going to be looking at number one, the questions taken, verses 16 through 21. Number two, the confusion answered, verses 22 through 31. And number three, the responses given, verses 32 through 34. Let's start with number one, the questions taken, verses 16 through 21. Now while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. Therefore he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews, and with the Gentile worshipers, and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. Then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him, and some said, what does this babbler want to say? Others said, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods, because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new doctrine is of which you speak, for you are bringing some strange things to our ears. Therefore we want to know what these things mean. For all the Athenians and foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or hear, some new thing. You see, Paul goes away to Athens while Silas and Timothy stay behind at Berea. This does not stop Paul, though, from continuing to minister. Just because his partners weren't around did not mean that Paul now quit doing the gospel ministry. In fact, that still emboldened him to do it again. As he's there in Athens, he's disturbed by the idolatry that he sees there. In fact, Paul, as a reminder, was a Jewish Pharisee, so for him this was almost a totally different culture that he's seeing here. If Paul stepped into our cities here in America, what do you think he possibly would think? If he stepped in, let's say, Seattle, what would he say about that city? What would he say if he were to step into San Francisco? What what would his thoughts be? Maybe Boston, for those of us in Massachusetts, or even here in Springfield. What would Paul say if he saw our culture setting here in Springfield, Massachusetts? You see, all of those things that we see here in this text is sometimes things that we just don't consider. We don't consider what it is that our culture really reflects. Would there be things that provoke or disturb you about a different culture that you'd step into? And I'm sure most of us would say, yes, of course. If I, if I went to this country that I've never been before, I'd be stunned by their paganism or idolatry, as Paul is here. The truth is, folks, we have many things here that are very similar to what Paul experienced there that should provoke us, that should break our hearts, to see that the world has given in to all falsehood. Paul was specifically sent by God to proclaim the gospel, And what mattered to him most was that. The truth is that usually isn't what matters most to us. The gospel message is very much down the list of priorities for many of us, right? We have got to take care of this, got to take care of that. And then maybe if I get to it, the gospel is probably like down the list a lot further. We'll eventually get to it when we have time. See, one of the things that I think is is really a conviction here that as I've read this text and started thinking for myself, does my heart break when I see the world in the state that it's in right now? Do I get, if you will, provoked as Paul does? And I have to be honest, at times I feel like I've just gotten used to it. I've just gotten used to the world being as wicked as it is. It's to be expected that they do these things. And what's unfortunate is, is it's, it's expected that they will not come to saving faith sometimes. And God's called us specifically to reach others around us. You see, Paul does not take a break from ministry, but rather makes it a point to continue. He continues reasoning in the synagogue, and the Gentiles as well, including the marketplace there where people are gathered. It's exactly in this spot, in discussing this in the marketplace, that Paul piques the curiosity of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers of that time. They're intrigued by what Paul has to say, though they don't really completely understand him clearly. There are many different differences, if you will, between these two competing philosophies. We're just gonna mention a few so you know where they come from. The Epicureans were disciples of Epicurus. Ultimately, they held to pleasure being the ultimate greatest value to man. To specify living life without fear, pain, at peace was the goal of every person that bought into this philosophy. They taught that divine gods did not bother to really be interested in the affairs of humanity. Organized religion to them was worthless because there's no accounting in the afterlife as it is according to them. Everything in life was a product of chance, and once you died, that was it. So enjoy what you can while you have it here on this earth. This is actually still quite prevalent today, including many who once held to the Christian faith who turned to this form of belief, where many of the moral codes of Scripture are redefined and borrowed from this very philosophy, which is really ultimately moral relativism. The modern form of this would be utilitarianism, which teaches the following points. These are the main points that this teaches. Pleasure or happiness is the only thing that truly has intrinsic value, which is why even Christians buy into this philosophy without even realizing it. How many of us have heard it's important that you're happy. As long as you are happy. How many of us have heard that? Still with us today. This philosophy has not died out. And unfortunately, it's infiltrated the church today. Where people's priority are is their personal happiness and what makes them feel good rather than what God's Word says. Here's another point. Actions are right insofar as they promote happiness wrong in so far as they produce unhappiness. So if it makes me feel good, then it must be right. If it makes me feel terrible, then it must be wrong. Imagine what our whole world would be like if this is the way we operated. And here's the last point, everyone's happiness counts equally. I don't know how you pull that off. Because what makes me happy might not make you happy, so how do we make this work? Justice is very much lacking in this worldview. It opens the door to personal interpretation of life experiences. Which ultimately means no one's in charge, no one should be held accountable. We're all just to enjoy life to whatever we can. The Stoics had a different approach, they came from Zeno, the Cypriot, who taught the importance of being one with nature in your thoughts. These argued for self-reliance and rational thought. In fact, what ended up happening is they tended to think they were better than most people, they were superior in some way, ultimately they were full of themselves. Their pantheistic belief was pushed everywhere, believing that everything had a rational explanation and somehow connecting to the nature and the divine. They emphasized logic and reason to the point of suppressing emotions such as happiness itself. They were almost on the other side of this equation, if you will. The modern form of this philosophy is found in idealism which teaches that the only reality is the one that's in the mind. How many of you have heard the phrase, mind over matter? Anybody hear that phrase? You all think this is all new. It's not. These philosophies have been imported into Western culture today. The only truth, according to this, is the one that's formed in the mind, many times outside the basic human understanding. New ideas are especially fascinating for idealists because the ideal has not yet been realized because it hasn't been thought of in the mind. And it's that idea that connects us to the divine. Because all of us have that spark of divinity in us. What fascinates the Epicurean and Stoics is that Paul is bringing something new to the conversation. His emphasis on Jesus and the resurrection is what piques their curiosity. Now something that's interesting is the word for resurrection is the same word for a Greek god, anastasis. Very interesting. That could be one of the reasons they were piqued in their curiosity with Paul on this. These schools of philosophy called Paul here in the text a babbler which was implying that he would have taken different ideas and kind of thrown them together. And that was the accusation against Paul because some are proclaiming that he's coming up with a new God by mixing things together. Needless to say, they invited Paul to the debate that they held in the Arapagus, or Mars Hill, if you will. Because to them, it was simply something that they were always looking forward to, which was discussing philosophy and the newest thing that was out there. Look at what verse 21 says again. For all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. They always wanted to hear something new. Frankly, whatever they've already heard about, known, was old, they needed something new. And unfortunately, this kind of way of thinking creeps into our theology as well as believers, which is why many of us don't hold the gospel as precious as we once did. We think we've kind of graduated from that. I need the deeper stuff. The gospel, eh, that's basic. And unfortunately, we leave it behind and try to continue to build without that being the standard and the foundation. Christ is the cornerstone. The gospel's built on him. What these people were interested in doing is just postulating their points. And listen, that's one thing I, I will strongly stress till the day that I die, is it's not enough to know all these new things in the Word of God if you're not doing anything with them and I'm not doing anything with them. There has to be something that you do with the things that you've learned. And you ought to not let go of the old things that you've learned as well. How many of you have ever taken a test in school and you had this big review section for the final exam. Anybody remember that? The final exam always had a review section, right? You had this from the new material you just covered, and this goes all the way back to the beginning of the year, and you almost forgot it, but then you realize, I need to study that for the final exam, right? Well, that's the way it should be in our Christian faith. You don't stop learning. You don't stop building on what you've already learned, and you review the things you've learned. How many of you have read her book and really you only remember maybe one thing out of that whole book? If that. How many of you have ever read a book, you recommended it to somebody, but you can't even spell it out what that book was really saying? You ever done that? Oh, I love this book. What is it about? I don't remember. Folks, this is why it's important to be in this. We forget. We forget. We forget. Right here, this, this is what gave Paul the opportunity, though, this bringing him to the debate, if you will, to connect the gospel with his audience who were looking for fresh insight, if you will. Number two, confusion answered. Verses 22 through 31. Then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing, him I proclaim to you. God, who made the world and everything in it, since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. Nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. And he has made from one blood every nation of men, to dwell on all the face of the earth, and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings, so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As also some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked. But now commands all men everywhere to repent, because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead." Paul here is giving an answer to their confusion without even quoting the Jewish scriptures to this audience, but rather reasoning with them in what they were familiar with themselves including the inscription that they had to the unknown God. Paul tells them that he notices that they're very religious. Their commitment to their gods and using what they're familiar with was what Paul was going to use in introducing them to the gospel itself. Christ is the one that he wanted to proclaim, but he took some time in building his case. Paul doesn't just jump right into the gospel. He builds a case from something that would draw their attention, the altar built to the unknown God. This is an important point to think through as we present the gospel message to those around us. We need to understand who those people are and where they're coming from. There are things to be learned here from Paul. We need to understand that This is, the end goal for us is to share the gospel, but many times what we do is we jump before understanding the context of who we're speaking to. That is the end all, be all, but it's important to understand how to present the gospel for us. God works sovereignly in spite of our horrible attempt to share his word many times, but it does not mean that we should have an excuse to be careless either. Wise as serpents, harmless as doves. That's what Jesus actually told us be. There's no cause for us to be careless in sharing the gospel. The inscription to the unknown God was to make sure that they didn't exclude or overlook any gods that they had not already mentioned. And those gods that they didn't mention, they didn't want to potentially still harm their city. Paul gives them a connection to this unknown God by telling them that he knows who this God is. This God that they're unaware of is the only God that essentially exists. He's the God that created all things and dwells in heaven. The God who made all that there is is not far from each one of us. That's what Paul says here. God is not hiding from anyone. Man is hiding from him we are running and hiding from God. God is transcendent over all of us, which connected with the Epicurean's idea that God is over all, but He is separate, not one of us. We as humans are not one with God, apart from His Son, the man whom He has ordained, as this text says. God the Father had sent His Son who had to take on human flesh to stand as a representative on our behalf. Paul expands on this as much as possible without confusing them with the Trinity. God does not need us, we need Him. Listen church, you still need to remember that. I know we tend to wake up in the morning and think we're all that at times. We think the world revolves around us. God doesn't need us, we need Him. Contrary to the Epicureans' belief, God does take interest in humanity. And God himself became a man to redeem and save man. The other thing that Paul mentions here is that he made of one blood every nation of man. The Athenians themselves boosted that, boasted, sorry, boosted, boasted that they were superior to those around them. They were the upper tier of humanity, if you will. And Paul simply reminds them that they're still descendants from one man, Adam. let Let me pause for a moment and say something that might seem a little controversial. Folks, I am proud to be an American, but I also realize being an American still traces me back to Adam, and we still have the same beginning as other nations. If we're going to go back historically, we all start with Adam. And at times, sometimes we have what tends to be a pride that goes beyond just a national pride, but a pride that goes beyond what Scripture wants us to stand for. You should be proud of what God's given you. You should be proud of your children. You should be proud of your family. You should be proud of your nation. But when that becomes a source of looking down and those around you, then that's the wrong pride. Racism is a sin not because some protest against it. It's a sin because we're made in the image of God of one blood. The human race is all made in God's image. Racism, by the way, is encouraged when we apply for jobs today. For a job or a college, they ask, what your race is? Is it Asian, Latino, black, white, Hispanic, you know, all these things, our own society encourages racism and then says, we don't want it. They encourage the very thing they claim to stand against. We don't want others to judge us based on skin color, yet encourage others to judge by skin color. Listen, church, of one blood. Of one blood. There is no prioritization when it comes to races before God. The only nation on this earth that has anything to boast of is not because of themselves, it's because God chose them. That's the nation of Israel. God specifically had a relationship with them not based on anything they did for Him, but because of His grace. And it's only because of God's grace that America exists in the condition that it does this morning. Paul hits at the pride of man by stating that God was the one that sets the standards and limitations of every nation on this earth. God's the one that sets the boundaries. The world is still trying to reach God in the dark. And they're trying to grasp at where he is, and they can't find him. But Paul says here that God is near. Paul states here in the text that man should seek for the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him. Oh, wait a second, Paul. How is that possible? Don't we have texts of scripture in Romans that says, no one seeks after God? You see, when you read these texts of scripture, you need to be able to wrestle with some, so what seems to be an inconsistency in Paul's argument here. The truth is, none of us seek after God. And we never will. Apart from divine grace. Apart from the Holy Spirit working in our hearts. Jesus himself actually gives the answer to this question and what seems to be a dilemma in what Paul's saying here. In John 6, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up at the last day. Seems pretty exclusive who can come. But I thought everybody has the same exact opportunity. God is the one who satisfies each of our needs. And he has no needs himself. We exist simply because he made it so. You and I are on this earth simply because God has declared it to be. The children you and I have as parents are the ones that God wanted us to have. The siblings that we had growing up are the ones God decided we were going to have. Paul here is using their writings regarding Zeus to move the conversation to the one and true God. Paul is setting the stage to introduce the God that they have ignored. The man, as he t- speaks to in this text, Christ Jesus. You see, since they, are, they declared that they're the offspring of God, Paul is pivoting from Zeus to the true God and asking, why would they shape one like that out of material matter? Why form Him in some image that you yourself create? What Paul's saying here is God is overlooking the ignorance of mankind because He has revealed Himself through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and has commanded everyone to repent. There are no more excuses for not knowing. Jesus has come, He died, was buried and rose again. There are no excuses anymore. Contrary to the Epicurean opinion, there is justice awaiting. There's justice and judgment coming. And the one who will judge is the one many think is a hipster today that is fine in approving of sinful lifestyles that many churches proclaim. It's contrary to his holiness. Jesus is not coming back, church, to give everybody a hug. that's not what's gonna happen Jesus is coming back to judge this earth Jesus is the one who will judge because he was the one raised from the dead to prove he himself is God the repentance mentioned here is turning away from sin changing our mind or attitude about sin and turning to Christ Paul, in the simplest form possible, just shared with them the gospel here. He didn't have this long theological discussion about what the gospel is. He just wrapped it in a nutshell, said God's called all of you to repent. He's called all of us to repent, without exception. It is simple faith in the Lord Jesus and that he is Lord risen from the dead that saves. The reason it is vital to repent of sin is because so many approve of the sin that they supposedly repented of when they came to him. Repentance is not a one time I feel bad for something wrong I did. Unfortunately, it's taught in too many churches today. I felt so bad I did this one thing that was horrible. Lord, please forgive me. And we go right back to doing it again. And we don't even care. It's declaring war on the sin that's within us. That's repentance. It is literally saying, here's my sin and here's Jesus. I want Jesus. It's not holding on to sin and defining ourselves still by the sin that we supposedly think Jesus is okay with. Which is why it's so important that today's culture understand you cannot redefine what the Word of God says. Because you no longer have a saving faith. Sin is sin and you and I don't get to define it. It's not holding on to sin and defining ourselves by that sin and wanting to add Christ. It is not defining, let's just put it in practical use for a second. It is literally like the world would like to define certain lifestyles and saying, you know what, fornicating Christian, that's what I want to be defined by. That's the equivalent today. We're going to use sin to define being a saint with that sin. Those are contrary. It's utter blasphemy to say those things. That's the reason Jesus came to suffer. To refuse to turn from sin and in not wanting justice thinking Jesus is approving of our sinful lifestyle is asking for God's judgment to remain on us. A saint that refuses to own sin is not a saint that understands the gravity of sin. And unfortunately, many are self-deceived in this area because many churches no longer really teach that a lot of things that scripture said are sins are still sin. Do what makes you happy. Oh, it's still today. That's a lot of the churches today. You can't turn to Jesus without turning away from sin, believer. If you're hearing this online and and you've just kind of thrown off by what Paul's getting at here, none of us, none of us can come to Christ without turning from sin. You can't just... Come to Him and go, you know what? I'm just going to do everything I've already done. None of what I do matters. I just want you to somehow rescue me from judgment later. Jesus is holy. You're sinful. Those don't mix. The reason you needed Him is because you're sinful. The truth is there must be sin acknowledged that we are to turn from in order for there to be repentance. Otherwise, it's not repentance. What are you changing your mind about? If you're still going to keep the same position on sin, then you haven't repented. This can be different for all of us because all of us have different sins before we came to saving faith, never mind the obvious one, which is unbelief. Sin is ultimately missing the mark of God's perfect standard, the law of God. What is interesting, and I think this is important, and I, and I want to pause for a moment and make this statement. Paul here doesn't go through a big list of sins for all these Greeks. Paul literally leaves it to the Holy Spirit to go ahead and work in people's hearts. I think what happens, I don't know if you've ever done this, when you read the Bible, you go, you read this text that says, you know, fornicators, adulterers, and all that. You go, well, that's not me, that's other people. What has the Holy Spirit called you out for? What's the Holy Spirit called me out for? What do I need to repent of? What do you need to repent of? Is it greed? You just want stuff for yourself? Is it your covetousness? You just really love what other people have? You're never satisfied with what you have? Is it gluttony? Is it hatred towards others and God? Do you just despise other people? Is it idolatry? It can cover a multitude of different things. With that, anything that really takes God's place as the supreme in your life—the sexual morality—can take many different forms: fornication, adultery, pornography, homosexuality. It doesn't matter. All of those things are a sin. Is it envy? Here's a common one that a lot of churches no longer believe is really possible that you may not be saved if you believe this about yourself, heresies. What do I mean by that? It's false teaching about Christ that is unbiblical. Every minister of God that misrepresents who Jesus is is guilty of heresy. If a person comes to the Bible and says, you know what, Jesus really was not opposed to adultery that much. Jesus really wasn't opposed to homosexuality. He doesn't even mention it. When when Jesus specifically told you what marriage was, a man and a woman, and that should settle it for you, Jesus also didn't talk about pedophilia, bestiality, and such. And I'm pretty sure we all know his position on those. Heresies are false teaching about Christ, which is utter blasphemy. In fact, the Pharisees committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit in not calling what Jesus had done by the power of God, but by the power of Satan. Here's the danger with heresy that I don't think a lot of people have stopped and thought through. You can be heretical in adding things to Scripture that God doesn't even say. You can also be heretical in taking away what God says, clearly. And one of the things, and I'm going to pause for a moment and make make a statement here. A lot of of children that grow up in very fundamentalist, strict homes go the other extreme when they grow into adults. They buy into progressive Christianity, which no longer teaches that half of the things that are in the Bible are really sin anymore. And that's straight heresy from the pits of hell. They no longer believe that what they were taught as a little child was really true. In fact, many churches today, if you really were going to dig into the leadership, they will tell you that hell is no longer real or they don't view it the same way they used to. That's heresy. That's blasphemy. That's speaking against what Scripture clearly reveals. It's heartbreaking to see what's going on in the church today. Each follower of Christ needs to make sure that they're not adding or taking away from what Scripture clearly reveals about Christ. John 1, 18 plainly states that we have not seen God, but if we know Christ, He has revealed Him to us. Verse 18 says, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. If you know Christ, you know the Father. You know God. If you don't know Christ, you don't know God. They're inseparable. Paul doesn't hold back, if you will. He tells them like it is You must repent, and judgment is coming. This is the ultimate truth that so many do not want to grasp. Judgment is coming, and God will judge mankind through Jesus Christ. The ones that think they've gotten away with sin will still have to give an account for their sin. It should terrify us and also comfort us if we are His children. Because there are people all around us that don't truly grasp the danger that they're in. Listen, church, there are people that you have great conversations with that you need to share the gospel with. You need to. Because the most damaging thing that you could do for them is not share that with them. The most dangerous thing, place for them to be is under condemnation, which they are under currently. You see, many of us, we, we warn about what's going on in the world and what's coming from a, you know, government control system and all this other all these other things that we see coming down the line. What we don't warn about is the impending judgment. It's coming. And for many, it will arrive a lot sooner than they assume. Of all years, this past year should have told us that there's a... There's the shortness of life that many times we don't pay attention to. Life is a vapor. We are going to have to give an account. The ones that think they've gotten away with it will not. Listen, the truth is there are many people that don't know the danger that they're in. And they don't know the danger that they're in because nobody shared that with them directly. It's not true, and I want to make myself clear on this based on what the Word says here, it is not true that everybody goes to heaven. It is not true that heaven gains an angel automatically when someone dies. And those of you that buy into these philosophies as believers, may I call you to account this morning that you need to stop believing this garbage that your worldly friends believe. Be careful with phrases like rest in peace as well. And I'm not gonna go into why right now. Because what many of you don't understand is that person may not be resting in peace. They may be literally being in judgment. Paul holds nothing back here. He says, listen, you need to repent. And that's the message, church, that we have to give to those around us. You need to repent. That's the message we need to hear ourselves. We still need to repent. Paul here gives a simple gospel invitation And he gets feedback. Number three, responses given, verses 32 through 34. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, while others said, we will hear you again on this matter. So Paul departed from them. However, some men joined him and believed. Among them Dionysius, their Arapagite, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Listen, church, this is what I love about the text here. In this text, you see the different responses people have to the gospel clearly spelled out. As to be expected, there will be a response to Paul's call to repentance here. And the main responses are the ones that most of us will encounter most of our lives. The first one is the mockery. That you're insane. This is a joke. This is foolish. Unfortunately, the first one may be the one most common. The mocking or ridicule response. This is ridiculous, Paul. Who even told you to say this to us? Now you're going to threaten us with judgment? I'm about happiness, Paul. I could just see one one of the philosophers there. We're about being happy. This isn't making us happy, Paul. You're a killjoy. Someone rose from the dead, and we're supposed to believe that? Nonsense. This was probably the typical response for every natural man that ever hears the gospel. It's foolishness to him. To the world gathering to, on, on Sundays to hear the Word of God is a joke. Why would you do that? Why would you do that? This is stupid. you believe that the church you attend is somehow better than everybody else? You believe that if people don't believe in Jesus, they really face judgment? How could you be so cruel? You're a bigot. Are you kidding me? Church, it's only divine grace that you and I see. And until you and I can go right back to where it all started, we understand why the gospel still matters today. How many of you remember your first time on certain things? Some of them might not have been a good first time, but let's just be honest. We all remember our first time for certain things, right? First time you got on a bike, didn't go so well. Let's try it again, son. I'm hurting, dad. The first time you had a crush in school. The first time you remember distinctively being under major conviction of the Holy Spirit? I still remember to this day when I was younger having done something that I know God was opposed to and sweating in midwinter and it made no sense to me. It was cold as it was upstairs. And I'm sweating. And I knew it was just God dealing with me. Everybody remembers that, right? We all have those first time And unfortunately, sometimes the good first time that we experience, we get over. It's not as thrilling the second, third, fifth, thousandth time to do whatever it is that we did the first time. Unfortunately, that's what happens with our relationship with God. We've gotten so used to it. We're so used to the fact that God saved us. We've gotten over it. Let me tell you something, folks. I think... Paul brings up the road to Damascus all the time because he never got over it. It's not because Paul had nothing better to do. It's because Paul understood, this was my life-changing moment. This is where it all changed for me. Paul only saw when he was blinded on the road to Damascus. Can you believe that? That's when he first saw. Not with physical eyes, spiritual eyes. Others wanted to hear more from Paul on this matter. They weren't so sure at the moment with all that Paul had just unpacked. So they wanted to come back to Paul and say, listen, let's discuss, thing. let's discuss this thing further. That may very well be the case with others that you share the gospel with. Not everybody, the first time they hear you share the gospel, are going to go, yes, sign me up. Lord, you have my heart today. Most people are going, that or that's ridiculous, I don't want to hear it. That is the typical response for man. Either maybe I'll talk to you about it later or "Ah, forget it, that's foolish, I don't want to hear it. It may seem strange or weird or even confusing to some even after you've explained some things. There may be more dialogue later on that you can come back to. Before a person comes to saving faith and turns to Christ. Listen, church, this is why this is important. Do not give up on sharing the gospel with people that are still confused. With people that still don't get it. Don't give up. You don't know when that other opportunity will arrive to share the gospel with them. They may come back to you years down the road in need, desperate, and saying, I remember that guy I used to work with. He used to talk about Jesus. I don't even know what he was talking about, but I kind of want to know now. I'm dying of terminal cancer. I want to know where I'm going. This is why it's important to keep sharing. The key to the gospel for us, though, folks, is to live out the gospel. And you live out the gospel by forgiving those around you that have done you wrong. By doing right even when the world does wrong. By legitimately saying, what God calls sin is sin. And that's what God saved me from. No, I'm not better than you. I've struggled with the same sins you have. God rescued me. I'm no better In fact, I still get very crazy anxiety that kicks in, and then I have to go back in faith and say, Lord, please help my unbelief. I'm not believing you right now. Hopefully we can all get the experience, which is the last response in this text, of some joining Paul and becoming believers, disciples of Christ. Dionysus was one of the council there, That, if you will, switch sides to join Paul. He sided with Paul on the gospel. There was also a lady that overheard this proclamation of Paul and believed as others did as well. So, in conclusion, church, here's my question Are your beliefs challenged? Are your beliefs challenged? How do you respond when that occurs? Or maybe that doesn't occur. Maybe there isn't enough of a difference for people to actually challenge what you believe. Are you apathetic to the gospel message? Does it no longer excite you that you're saved? Have you gotten used to being a Christian and you just don't feel like bringing it up to people anymore? Well, I used to share this when I was saved earlier on, but now I've just kind of gotten used to this whole thing. They don't need to hear it. Listen, there's real danger for people around you. How superficial can we be in not sharing the danger that people are in? How can we say that we believe in eternal judgment and damnation, yet not warn people around us? Are you willing to understand where others are coming from, like Paul did here? Some of us need to do some homework before we try to reach people around us. You need to know where people are coming from before you try to reach them with the gospel sometimes. It's good to brush up on the areas of your theology that are weak, church. For example, if you do not have a good grasp on the Trinity... Not everybody's gonna want a conversation on the Trinity. Okay? I have to say that right up front. But some will. Some will. And if you don't know how to defend your position, you might want to brush up on that. If you're weak in your view of Gnosticism, which is still prevalent today, you should brush up on it. You should read books like one or two by Peter Jones. It was a book recommended years ago for a reason. still recommended today. One of the most important things that you can do, believer, is to live a consistent life before the world. To love your wives as Christ loved the church husbands. For wives to submit to their own husbands in the fear of the Lord. For children to obey their parents. For those of us that are walking with God to be consistent in that walk. To treat others the way that we would want to be treated. You know the golden rule that everybody talks about, but many of us don't apply. Treat others as you would want to be treated. Is that true? What you ultimately believe about God will come out in what you live before Him and others. Repentance is not a one-time event or a temporary change of mind. It's a constant battle in your mind to turn from the things that take God's place. If you don't know Christ, you're watching online, this just seems foolish to you. It's ridiculous that we even proclaim this as a church. I hope you understand the danger you're in. I hope you understand that we pray that God himself reveals himself to you. And the importance of Christ as it says in verse 30 and 31 truly these times of ignorance got overlooked but now commands all men everywhere to repent because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained he has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead